I begin today by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of the land on which I record this podcast, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have an intrinsic connection to this land and have cared for country for over 60,000 years, with their way of life having been devastated by colonisation. Hi, and welcome to Social Work Spotlight, where I showcase different areas of the profession each episode. I'm your host, Jasmine Lupus, and today's guest is Michelle, an accredited mental health social worker, accredited EMDR consultant, clinical resource therapy trainer, as well as partner in private practice and director of EMDR relational and training at Seaver House in the Hunter region. Michelle is passionate about her work in trauma and works extensively with children, young people and adults who have experienced complex trauma such as sexual abuse, domestic and family violence, addiction, personality disorders and mental health issues. Michelle also works with young people who have caused harm to others. Michelle provides EMDR consultation and clinical supervision to professionals and develops and facilitates training in EMDR and resource therapy. Thank you, Michelle, for coming onto the podcast. It's really lovely to meet with you today and I'm excited to have a chat with you about your experience in social work so far. Thank you, Yasmin. Thank you for um, inviting me as well. I'd love to talk first about when you began in social work and what got you into mm-hmm. the profession in the first place. Yeah, okay. So um, I was a single mother. So I was a mature age student when I went to university working as a teacher's aide and I was going to be a teacher. And one of the teachers at the school I was working in um, said, you should be a social worker, you know, instead of going into teaching. And um, my experience of social workers was that they weren't very nice people. So my parents died when I was 10 and I was raised in an orphanage, so in a children's home. So social workers back in the 70s weren't very nice people. And so when he said I should be a social worker, I sort of laughed and went, I don't think so. And he said, no. Mm. You're always advocating for the kids. Go home and have a look at the course and the curriculum. And he said, you'd make a great social worker. So I went, okay. So I went back home and looked. I went, oh, yeah, actually, that looks okay. And that's what led me into the field of social work. I still didn't know what I wanted to do as a social worker. Didn't know if I wanted to work in child protection or didn't think about being a therapist, to be honest, way back then. But, yeah, that's what got me in and, and I loved it. And four years later, I came out and went into case management um, in early intervention. And before that, I'd done a little bit of a stint in Centrelink. Didn't like that. Didn't last very long in Centrelink. Yes. So that wasn't um, certainly for me. But yeah, went into case management and just working with families with domestic violence and mental health and drug and alcohol issues. But that yeah, that was my first job out of university. Yeah, I loved it. So it was the right degree for me. Yeah, yeah. And what was the adjustment period like for you then having gone from being a teacher's aide to going back to study, having the kids? How did you get through all that? Yeah, well, I was working from home as well. So I was a potter. So I was a teacher's aide, as well as doing pottery and selling at markets. So there was a lot of late nights, uh, waking up at three o'clock in the morning with a laptop on my lap. I did my degree by distance ed. So I did it through Charles Sturt University. And every semester I would have to go down for a week's residential school, which was actually quite a lot of fun. But yeah, I didn't find, it was, it's interesting because I always had this, I was a ward of the state and being a child from that sort of background, 
I thought university was for different people. So I was actually quite surprised that it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be, that it was actually quite enjoyable. And I really did love it. So I didn't struggle at university. So it wasn't, it wasn't really a struggle. Um, there were late nights because I did it full time as well as working, but I didn't struggle with the subjects or the, the work. Do you think that's got a lot to do with the teachers, the lecturers that you had at the time? Yes, I really liked Charles Sturt University because all the lecturers were still practising. So they all still worked. So they, they worked at the uni, so they, they were academics, but they also were still working in the field. And so they were really engaged with what we did. Yeah. And was there one that stood out for you? I think they all stood out for me for different reasons. I mean, the course coordinator was lovely. We had Wendy Bowles. She was a, a pretty out there social worker as well. She was very yeah. passionate and she, sort of she was very alternative as well. Even though she, mm -hmm. she lived on a farm, Charles Sturt Uni was down in Wagga Wagga and she lived on a farm and that's so how she was quite farmy, but she was also really alternative and yeah, I really liked her. And she told stories of in the 1970s, she worked in the cross as a social worker and, and things yeah. like that. So, yeah. Amazing. And what were your placements then? So my first placement was in Centrelink. I had a placement there. That should have told me not to go back there, but it didn't. <laughs> and then my second placement was actually where I got a job, was actually with Brighter Futures. So that was my final placement. And that's actually, they offered me a job while I was doing my final placement there. Okay. So I didn't even, yeah, so I stepped straight out of finishing uni, straight into a full-time case management job, which was quite good. Yeah, so you kind of already knew what to expect to a certain degree, but it then still is always a bit of an adjustment of I'm no longer a student, I've got more expectations yeah. now. Yeah, for sure. And and I was also a sole worker, so they placed me in an office by myself inside another NGO. But I, I was very comfortable by then. I had really good mentors. I had really good social workers around me that were working there as well. I was given a lot of I suppose freedom as well in my placement because it was a fourth year placement as well. So I was given a lot of freedom in the work that I did and that was really good. Yeah, no, I loved it. It was great. I see that you've also done some extra study. Can you tell me about the masters and how yes. that might have influenced the direction you took? Yeah, for sure. Well, the masters started when I went to sexual assault. So I worked as a case manager for a number of years and what I found was some of my children were being um, sexually abused on their visits through the family law court and that sort of gave me a passion for that sort of work so I wanted to get into that work so I was very lucky I applied for a job in New South Wales Health as a sexual assault worker they train you then extensively you do lots of intense training to become a therapist like a counsellor to do that work so it was while it was when I first started that job in um, New South Wales Health I was there for about a year and then I decided to do my master's um, in social work of advanced practice and then I I was very lucky because I also did a part of it with the police university at Bathurst, doing a couple of subjects on deviant behaviour as well, because that really interested me working in sexual assault. So that was, yeah, that was quite good. I enjoyed that as well. And the, the major was in mental health. So I majored in mental health in my master's um, because that's what I was seeing was impacting a lot on the children's neglect and also the capacity to protect as well. You know, so when someone's suffering significant mental health, there's attachment ruptures within the family, uh, which then also allow other people to come in because the kids are vulnerable, the non-offending parent is vulnerable, and so it just makes kids more exposed to that. So mm -hmm. um, I was really interested in that as well. Mm. It sounds as though you were predominantly interested in working with younger people, but that exposes you to working with 
older people as well. Yeah. 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 You can't work with kids just on their own because they don't stand alone there, you know, mm. and it's not their responsibility. So you invariably work with all of them. But in sexual assault, we only work with the victims. We don't work with the, what's called the significant others very often unless we have capacity. But my clients were adults, children and adolescents. So the majority of them had suffered child sexual assault. Some of them were adult victims but the majority of them were um, child sexual assaults. And then I had the children that were recent victims and adolescents as well. Mm -hmm. And were the services set up separately for younger people versus older people or were they kind of all thrown in together and treated the same? Thrown in together. So I worked up in the Upper Hunter. So once again, I was a sole worker up there. Mm. And the Upper Hunter is an hour and so it was an hour and a half's drive of a morning and an hour and a half's drive of an afternoon to get home which I thought was quite good. It sort of gave me a bit of separation. I could listen to podcasts and do some mindfulness on the way home. But I was a sole worker up there. So in a rural area, there's not many services. My team was based in Newcastle. So once a month, I would go down there and spend the day down there with the team. But up there, I was just on my own. You're not even part of the social work team up there. You are a different stream. You are come under violence and prevention stream. So mm-hmm. even though there's other social workers up there, which was great, they weren't part of my team, so to speak. So I loved it because I got to manage the service how I wanted to manage it. Go out, do education in schools, in high schools like Love Bites and, and things like that. So it was, a, it was a really nice varied role. And we also, because we didn't have a service that worked with children under the age of 10 that caused harm to others, I was also trained in that. So I would also work with that population as well, which was really interesting. It's a lot of responsibility for someone who's relatively new in their practice, in their development, what sort of support did you need back then? I actually didn't need that much support. I'd been working already for probably about four years, nearly five years. So, and I think age comes into it. I think life experience comes mm-hmm. into it as well. If you're pretty well grounded, I also do a lot of tra- did a lot of training. So that's what I threw myself into. I was very lucky in Benevolent Society. They had a big funding bucket for training. So I did a lot of training with Mary Jo McVie and really talented social workers like that. Mm. And the same within health, a lot of training within health as well. But my team were there if I needed them. So I had a clinical coordinator based in Newcastle. So if ever I was in doubt or anything, I would give her a call. I was always always able to just jump into a health car if I needed to and go down there for support if I needed that. And it sounds like the thing that was most important to you was that flexibility to kind of make the role what you needed it to be. Yeah, yeah. That's what I like. I think what I struggled with in health was that people are in silos. And for me, coming from an NGO into a big government organisation, when you've got so many talented clinicians there, I couldn't understand because they don't step out of their stream. See what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I suppose when you talk about support, the support I had was the social work team up there, even though they weren't in my stream, so to speak. I would go up and have lunch with them because I was a level three. Part of my role is to provide supervision as well. So I would provide supervision to them as well up there. So it was a really nice little team that we had, and I suppose we supported each other. So we had domestic violence workers up there. We had child protection workers. We had community health social workers. And there was a psychologist as well. So it was, yeah, it was quite a good little team up there. So we supported each other in the work we did. Yeah. I think it highlights also the importance of networking in those community roles because it wouldn't have just been health people that you were working with in, say, the Love Bites program or facilitating training or being able to do any sort of project, really. You need to know 
who are your people who is going to yeah. be the one that you refer to or you know it's it's a lot of that that you're just building your people around you you're building your tribe and you're figuring out who are these people that I need to reach out to so it's not it's not like that formal supervision as much as the informal everyday how do we problem solve that's right and and having those networks is really important and part of that is also belonging to groups and things like that so being on the domestic violence panel so being on boards and things like that so I did a lot of that work as well you know networking finding out what was needed in the community so what were we short of that we needed more of as well it's that big R word research that a lot of social workers are afraid of, but it's something mm. that we do all the time in order to demonstrate that there's a need for something, right? So that's, that's exactly great experience right. as well. Yeah, yeah. it's just done in a more informal way than academically, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so when did you decide to move on from that? What was the precipitator for you? Okay, so I think I was up there a couple of years. I was, so five days a week I was doing they were very long days and so I negotiated with health to do my five days in four which made them longer days so were, I ended up working 13 hour days so not working but and still traveling three hours a day yes yeah, so I was working 10 hours and traveling three hours mm. so they, they were 13 hour days but I was able to negotiate to do the Monday to Thursday which suited me so I got every Friday off yeah. and then I started dipping my toe into private practice so on a Friday then in 2016 I started doing some private practice down here on a Friday. So doing victim services work, which I really enjoyed and I really love that. And I also had stepped up into the role as a social worker manager up there. So I was mm -hmm. doing two roles. I was doing two days a week, I was doing sexual assault. So I was doing actually the manager's role the whole four days, but I still kept half a load of sexual assault work. That was really good for me because it made me realize I didn't want to be a manager. Mm -hmm. um, I loved. I loved mentoring. I loved all that, but I don't like all the other stuff that goes with yeah. being a manager in New South Wales Health. So that was a really good experience for me. I missed my clinical work. I missed being a therapist. And so what I decided to do then in 2017, we got a, a lovely manager who's actually still up there, which is really lovely. She's beautiful. So she stepped into the role. And then in the beginning of 2017, I went to a 0.5 position, which is two and a half days a week. So I did my two and a half days in two days and I did two days. I went to two days in Newcastle to a practice in Newcastle called Orchard Counselling, which was run by an, another lovely bunch of social workers. Mm. So they gave me a lovely wraparound sort of thing. So I was doing one day up here and two days down there. Predominantly victim services work, even though I'm a accredited mental health social worker, I found victim services work was what I was comfortable with. Complex trauma. I'm comfortable with my first I can still remember my first mental health client came to me for generalized anxiety and I just actually didn't know what to do with them I actually had a bit of a bit of a little woo you know oh yeah so that was really lovely and then in 2000 and the end of 2018 I decided I didn't want to stay in health any longer the bureaucracy there was some things changes happening that I didn't like they were taking us more away from the work the clinical work that I liked, attending more meetings and, and things like that. So I decided, no, I didn't want to stay in health. I wanted to go into full-time practice. So what I decided to do was to do two days from home, so online work, two days down in Newcastle, and still I was only doing one day a fortnight in a room up here in Maitland. And then health, health wanted me to stay one day a fortnight as a consultant. So just one day a fortnight, I would just go up there, 
doing consultancy work, supervision, that sort of stuff, and just sort of supporting the manager as well. And then at the end of 2019, I was getting tired of driving to Newcastle. So Newcastle, it's not that far, it's a 40 minute drive, but you know, I was getting tired of that. And I thought I wanted to open, there's nothing around the Maitland area where I live. And so I approached Amy, the lovely Amy who you've, you've spoken to. Mm -hmm. And so Amy had come up, I'd already pilfered her out of a school and took her up to health. <laughs> and so I thought, well, why don't I pinch her from health and bring her into private practice with me? So I approached Amy and I also approached Dixon, another social worker up there and said, look, you know, I want to open up a private practice in Maitland. Would you be interested? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and that was it in 2000, end of 2000, December, 2019, we found the house we wanted um, and that became Siva House in Maitland. And that's where we still practice from today. Yeah. When you were going through uni, was there much talk of social workers in private practice as a sort of scope of social work type thing? Because for me, it didn't even, it wasn't on my radar at all. No, no, there wasn't. They didn't talk about that. And I found even even going into sexual assault, it was only because I went into sexual assault and you were a counsellor in sexual assault that I came across that type of work. Mm. There's a little bit of that work in one of the resi schools, but nothing, not as a therapist, do you know what I mean? Not as actually a therapist. Yeah, yeah. And that's really sad, I think. And when I did my degree, I don't know if it was, all they ever talked about was narrative therapy. There was nothing else anyway. It's like there was no other therapies that they talked about So, in social work. And when I was in sexual assault, I trained myself in ACT. I trained myself in compassion-focused therapy, which was chair work. So I'd already started doing some parts work way back um, in 2011. I trained in ACT in 2008 was when I first trained in ACT. I was the first social worker. I was actually the only social worker in the training that I went to. Everyone else was psychologists or GPs. So I've always been a bit mm. out there, I think, in, in the way I wanted to work. What was the process like for you of completing the accreditation, the accredited mental health social work course? <laughs> it's going back, what, eight, nine years ago now. So it's, it's hard to remember. Yeah. It, it wasn't that difficult. I know, it's, I know it's harder now. There's an exam now. There was a lot of yeah. writing. There's a lot of essays from my memory. <laughs> Like, you know, a lot of case scenarios, you had to give questions and answers and evidence base and why you were using that theory, what was behind that, that sort of stuff. But I found it very much like uni. So mm -hmm. there wasn't an exam, though, when I did mine. Now there's an exam, I think, so it's a bit different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've just had such mixed experience, I guess, with the people that I've spoken with and some have just said it's the hardest thing they've ever had to do and almost made them want to give up completely and others have said, like yourself, it's fairly straightforward. So I guess it comes down to, and maybe this was your experience, but maybe it comes down to just the degree to which you're prepared to kind of give it a slog, but also you've got your ducks in a row. So you know how long it's going to take you. You've got all your paperwork, all your evidence determined already, and you're kind of just going through the process. Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, that I found that the same with uni. Do you know what I mean? Like I think I said to you before, I had this impression that university was going to be really hard and really difficult, but actually it wasn't. I find if you're passionate about something, you want to learn about it. Yeah, true. You know, you, you actually want to, you want to learn. So, For people who are less familiar with complex trauma, would you mind explaining that for people? So complex trauma is usually around multiple things that have happened time after time after time after time. That's the complexity of it. So it's, it's what we call cumulative harm usually happens in childhood, so usually early childhood. We say now, like, you know, in the training I've done now with the neuroscience training and being an EMDR therapist, 
well, you look at it usually before the age of seven, before the prefrontal cortex kicks in. And that can be things like not having your needs met either. So it doesn't always have to be being abused or physically or sexually, or it can just be like emotional neglect, actually not getting your needs met. And if that happens cumulative time after time after time, then complex trauma or complex PTSD occurs, you know, and then there's a big crossover then between the behaviours of complex trauma and other disorders such as borderline personality disorder and they're now looking even at autism and, and ADHD, mm-hmm. the, the same markers. So, you know, what came first? You know, did the disorder yeah. come first and then the trauma or did the trauma come first and then the disorder? But, yeah, it's interesting and they're, they're much more, if you want to think of them, interwoven. So they're, they're interwoven within the networks. So these beliefs of who I am, which is usually before the age of seven. So if you're crying as a baby, a newborn baby, and you're not being picked up, you're not being comforted, you're being left in a cot or you're being left in a bouncer in front of a TV or you're getting breastfed and mum's not even looking at you, looking at a phone, like simple things like that can lead to this belief that I'm not lovable, I'm not enough, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and when that keeps happening, it strengthens that belief about yourself. And then they go to school and the teacher might yell at them and can't you just be quiet, little Michelle, you know, or sitting in the corner. So once again, gee, I'm bad or I'm not this. Or, you know, so these they just get piled upon and piled upon. And then that makes them vulnerable. It makes them vulnerable mm-hmm. to people coming into their lives and taking advantage of them. It makes them vulnerable as teenagers in the relationships that they choose. Then they go into adulthood, once again, choosing unhealthy relationships, feeling that they're not worthy, feeling that that's not for them. Even for me going to university, it was like this is even you know, coming out of university, I was very quiet, even as a mature age student, because I speak very bluntly, I speak very plainly, I don't speak eloquently, I suppose. I definitely don't have that now. But back then it was, I'm not good enough. You know, I'm a homes kid. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve this. Mm. You know, so they're what we call core beliefs and they're what shape people because it's, it's how they see themselves. It's how they see their place in this world and their sense of belonging. And that's to me is what I love about the work that I do and being able to flip that, you know. Yeah. So it's it's that effect of repeated exposure to trauma at a time when you're developing most rapidly you've got physical development emotional social it's at that time when you're most vulnerable and it will have the biggest impact on you yeah that's right it's it it has that it has an impact of how you see yourself Mm -hmm. you know how you actually see yourself in this world and that that is huge when you think that you don't deserve to be loved you're not going to pick a partner that's going to love you Mm. you know you're going to pick someone that's going to be true to that that's not going to love you you know yeah and then you know if you haven't had those formative experiences of being parented in a healthy way how do you then know how to parent <laughs> you're not born with this knowledge you know we learn it mm-hmm. so then you don't so then that's passed on do you know what i mean and that's when we yeah. and then we have and then we can bring in epigenetics into that which is you know how trauma is passed on coded on the myelin of the, of the cells you know and then we have collective trauma you know, if we look at our First Nations people here, that's collective trauma, mm-hmm. the story that's carried on. Yeah, that we just continue to perpetuate, yeah. Yep, that's exactly right, yeah. So attachment, that's what I love about attachment, is when we look at things through an attachment lens, because attachment is so important, you know, because of being mammals, being, you know, and this is this is primitive stuff. This is not because we're human or because we're highly intelligent or it's because we're mammals and we need attachment. 
you know, and if our birth, mm. if our birth parents reject us, if our biological parents reject us, well then, wow, how bad must we be? They don't even want me, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I was looking at some of the work that you've done while I was gently stalking you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I saw that you've done some work and maybe you're continuing to do work with young people who harm others mm. and that you were approaching that from a non-judgmental perspective. And I, I wrote down a little question mark of how, how, how do you manage to keep a non-judgmental perspective? But what you've just said perfectly eloquently is that you're seeing it from that perspective of trauma, from that complex trauma lens. Yeah. And you've seen how they've gotten to this point because of all the experience that they've brought to where they are now. So it's not about what you've done. It's about what's led you to this point. That's right. Am I getting that? That's right. What's happened to you? Yeah. And and the sad thing is, you know, for, for our programs here, in, and I can't talk about New South. So when I'm talking, it's only about New South Wales. I can't talk about other states. But here are programs that work with young people who've caused harm to others. And these programs will only work with them if there's been no charges laid. They work on the offending behaviour. So about taking responsibility. So they don't start with the trauma first. They work with the offending behaviour first. Take responsibility. My belief is how can they take responsibility for something when all that trauma is still underneath? You have to work on the trauma first. You have to get underneath, Mm. work on that trauma so they understand why they did what they did and then you work on the behavior and then you'll get the responsibility you know so I think they've got it wrong I think they need to work on the trauma first and that's that's what I do and I even work with some adults which if you had told me back in 2011 or something that I would be working with perpetrators of child abuse and I'm talking about adult offenders now that have served time in jail because back then I just wanted to put them on an island surround it with sharks (laughs) and give them no food so that was how I wanted to deal with them but first of all, doing compassion focused therapy sort of started to change my mind. And then doing becoming a parts therapist also helped me see that it's just a part of them. Mm-hmm. There's a reason, and I have to say, the people that I work with have had highly significant childhood trauma, like not just one or two really bad abuse, you know, that went on. And so I look at that and go, it's just a part of them that offended. There's so much more to them than that part. So it's helped me become a much more compassionate therapist as well, I think. Mm -hmm. Do you find that the people that you liaise with then in justice, police, courts, are empathic to that perspective? How do you find that process of trying to encourage them to look beyond the behaviour? No, if you can can give me the secret to that, yes, man, I would love that. (laughs) No, look, I find it family law court, don't even get me started on family law court. It's a horrible, horrible you are at the mercy of the judge that you have. You are lucky. You know, that it's a draw of the card on what happens in family law court, number one. Our child protection, I was only having this conversation with Amy yesterday, you know, that even today child protection workers, you know, will say to a father, oh, you're at risk of offending because you were sexually assaulted as a child. Mm. They still have that belief, do you mean, that because you were, you were sexually assaulted as a child that you're going to offend. Yeah. That's the myth. There's no, if that was a case, we would have a lot more female offenders out there than we do, you know, because the majority of the child victims are female. So there's no substantiation to that claim, but there's there's just this misunderstanding out there. And, and so I find it really difficult. Yeah. I did read recently, actually, they're 
there is movement in the Raising the Age campaign, right, from yeah. 10 to what are they hoping to change it to? 14, yeah. Okay, which is yeah. still a developing brain but still better it than is. 10. Oh, it is. And when you say to, you know, I mean, it's sad, isn't it, when you say to parents, and I've had this conversation many times, well, okay, you're lucky he or she is nine. Okay, we're lucky. There'll be no charges laid. There'll be no investigation. Mm. You know, we still need to report it. But, I mean, but that's sad, isn't it, when we say that, well, we're lucky that they're eight or they're nine, they're not ten yet. Let's get this reported before they turn ten. You know, it's just ten is so little. Then when you know that they've had a history of abuse by a parent, it does, it breaks my heart, you know. And then you've got other, you know, other services that won't see kids if they're self-harming or if they've got suicide ideation or it's just sad, I think, how there's so much fear everything's fear averse everything is you know it's risk averse they try to protect the system instead of trying to protect the person yeah given that you enjoy the leadership and the mentoring side of things Mm. but not so much the management side of things how Mm. have you found being director of a company now yeah well it's it's good because it's small it's only small so that's good And, and what i love about so the mentoring and that i get still by providing supervision and consultation mm-hmm. so I love that you know and with Siva the therapists that come and work under Siva they come in under their own power we're there for them and we give them the referrals but you know it's up to them how much they want to work how many clients they want to see what sort of work they want to do it's more or less their practice they're just practicing under our banner so to speak mm-hmm. and so I find that really liberating as well yeah and what support do you receive now we support each other I have two consultants like supervisors, I have an EMDR supervisor and I have an ACT supervisor, mm-hmm. which is really good because I'm still an ACT therapist and compassion-focused therapist as well as being an EMDR therapist. So, yeah. But, yeah, we support each other. We have – so every month, so the partners of Siva House, we have a meeting. Ours is at the pub, which is really nice. <laughs> and then also one day a month we have a team meeting. So we put on lunch for everyone so that they all take two hours off on a Friday. And we have lunch. It's very informal, but they can chat about anything if they've got any concerns about anything, if they've got any training that they want to do or or that they want to actually run, you know, if they've got any ideas for anything. You know, we're, we're open to that as well. If they want to run training from Siva House, they're able to do that. If they want to take their practice, you know, we're very lucky. We've got beautiful grounds. We've got a pool. Clients get in the pool. If they want to have a session in the pool, they're able to do that. You know, they're able to do yoga. We've got beautiful cabana outside if they want to do movement practice. We have handball and things like that, trampolines and all those crazy things. So. Public liability insurance, hopefully. I wasn't even thinking about that, but um, yeah, every room has a <laughs> boxing bag in it as well. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. Amazing. It sounds like a really welcoming, safe space, which is what you would have intended. It's a really lovely space and we have really lovely clinicians. I have one of the, one of the therapists that's there, Kathy, we went to uni together, so we would travel down to res school together. So she's seen mm-hmm. my boy now is nearly 30 years of age. He'll be 30 in, I think, 12 days or something. Mm-hmm. She's seen him grow since he was seven, so she's been around for a long time. Yeah, so it's lovely. She still works in sexual assault. She only works two days a week at Siva, and the other three days she's still in sexual assault. Mm-hmm. She hasn't made the jump yet. I keep trying to encourage her to make the full leap out of health, but we'll get there. Other than that education piece and trying to really hit home to other professions, other settings around the effects of trauma and trying to support people within your role, 
What do you find most challenging? What are you really working hard on to get through to people? Courage. Mm. Have the courage to understand that, once again, it's this, it's this fear of causing harm. I have a little motto that I, that I say to myself and something that I've told all the others quite often, you know, our clients show us so much courage when they come and see us. Mm. We have to have the same courage to take them where they need to go. So that to me is a, is a thing. Courage, get out there and do the training. Always keep learning, you know, because things change mm-hmm. very, very quickly. And do what you love. Don't do something because you think it's the right thing to do or because it's the flavour of the month or, you know, do something that you're passionate about. You know, if you're passionate about dementia, go into dementia. Like, you do what you're passionate. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't sound very flavoursome, but, you know, if you're passionate about it, do it, you know. Yeah. Follow your heart mm-hmm. and have good support. Have regular supervision. They're the things I'm always encouraging with the guys at SIVA, but also all my own supervisees that I see as well is to be passionate, ask questions, get the support if you need it. Don't be scared to ask for help either. You know, so my supervisees all know that they can just flick me an email. If they want to know something, they don't have to wait till their next consult. They can just flick me an email and when I get time, I'll, I'll get back to them with, with the answer or any resources that they need, you know, because I don't want them to hold off for a month waiting to hear from me, you know. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is as well that I'm always encouraging people is to be really creative in your work. Mm. Be really creative in your work. Don't be fearful to show a bit of humanity. So yeah. it's okay to say to someone, you know, I've had this conversation with people who are struggling as being a single mum and I'll say, I was a single mum. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to have no money. I know what it's like to hide my car behind my house so I didn't repossess it back in the day. I say to them, don't be frightened to share a little bit about yourself, you know, because I think that makes you more human. Absolutely. But also it makes you more human. <laughs> I'm just thinking the positionality of that where, yes, you've disclosed to a certain degree, I was a single mum, I was struggling, mm-hmm. I made I made it work. Is there ever a time when that either becomes a real issue for you, given that you deal with traumatic content every day, but also you've been through some real challenges very early in life. It sounds as though that's just a strength for you and that's how you've imagined it and that's how you've been able to conceptualise and bring it forward into your work, but it's still tough. Do you ever feel the need to disclose? Is it ever appropriate with your clients? So... I've disclosed that I was raised by nuns and in an orphanage. I have a I have a client I see that was in, raised in an orphanage as well, and she uses the same language. So she used the word mm-hmm. billeted. So I don't know if you know what the word billeted means. Mm-hmm. But she says I was billeted out, and that's a language, that's a term that's used in holidays. Kids were farmed out to people from orphanages yeah. and children's homes. We were billeted out, you know. So I shared with her that yeah, I was raised. And I know what it's like. I know what that feels like. So we have a shared connection it doesn't impact on the therapy it doesn't impact on me being her therapist because I don't let it it's just a moment it's not you have to make sure that the session doesn't become about you it's just a moment about connecting Mm -hmm. and saying I understand I'm here with you I know where you're coming from I have never ever struggled with the work I do the only time I didn't sleep Yasmin was when I stepped into that manager's role (laughs) and then I was not sleeping but Working as a therapist, and to be honest, I think I've heard, 
I don't think I, there's nothing I don't think I've ever not heard. Do you know what I mean? Like you can't help but look at humanity differently. You look at humanity differently. It's darker. It's definitely a lot darker. You know, I do feel a bit mm -hmm. sorry for my son because, and we live in a very small place and very safe. But you know, I'd say to him, walk close to the fence. Don't walk close to the road. You know, no, he's never had a sleepover. The sleepovers were always at my house. Do you know what I mean? So his mates would come to my house. He never went to anyone's house for a sleepover. So I do feel a little bit sorry for him. I suppose in that aspect, because you do see the world differently. You see this, it's, it's darker, but I never lost sleep over it. It's never impacted me on, on me in a negative way. Given that upbringing and exposure and experience, does your son do anything similar now with his work? No, my son became an electrician. Mm -hmm. My son would have been diagnosed with ADHD, I'm sure of it. I mean, they wanted to diagnose him. As, he was that kid that very bright, got a very good report card, but on the bottom of every report card, disruptive in class because he would finish his mm -hmm. work and be bored. He's still the same. We go to dinner, he's finished his dinner, the knife and fork are going, bang, 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 bang. <laughs> and I'll, I'll give him my dinner, say, here, eat what's left of mine. He left halfway through year 11, did his apprenticeship as an electrician. He did the first two years in a um, domestic and then went two years to the power stations. He now runs a multi-million dollar company at the age of 29 and has 30 men it's at all trades. So he has all the contracts for defence. Mm -hmm. He also has all the contracts for schools. Yes, yeah, so he's very successful. But no, he could not He could not do my work. I'm trying to get him to go and have a breathwork session. He just says, no way. <laughs> he's, not going to do, he's not going to do any holotropic breathing, he says. He just says, mum, don't pull that social work shit on me. That's what he says to me. <laughs> I remember he came home from school. He must have been, I think, 12 years of age. And I was curled up in the lounge reading a book. And I think it was pedophiles, sex offenders, or something like that. Something like that. He goes, Mom, can't you get your head out of that stuff? You do that all day. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's used to me, though. Yeah. No, it sounds like he's done so well for himself, though. He must be really proud. I'm very proud of him. He's a he's a very good kid. He's very, yeah, he's got, and he's got very good friends around him, you know, which is always lovely. And, you know, his father, his father and I have always remained friends. So we separated when he was seven, but we remained best friends. And so he's always had a good relationship with both of us, um, which is really good. And I think that's, mm -hmm. that's important as well, you know? Yeah. Given that private practice as a concept for social work is relatively new, at least for you and I, in, in terms of it just wasn't a mm. concept when we were studying, other than that, I guess, what, what changes have you seen over time in this area of work? I'm thinking just a huge example is just an awareness and understanding of EMDR and how it can be used mm. in mm. this setting. Yeah, for sure. Look, I mean, what I've seen definitely is that social work is getting a lot more understanding around neuroscience, which I think is really good. Mm. So we've always had big hearts and we've always been able to look at things holistically, you know, taking the wide lens, which I think is really important. Whereas psychology has always been more narrow on the person. What's wrong with you? Do you know what I mean? Looking, you know, whereas we've looked at the environment and the stuff around, you know, that, that much more expanded level, but not so much. We didn't look at the neuroscience. We didn't look at polyvagal. We didn't look at the biology stuff. You know, I think now we are, which I think is really good. So that's really important. And I think psychology now is getting more heart. That's the way that I see it. So I see that actually two disciplines are actually coming closer together, mm -hmm. which I think is good because there's good in both. EMDR, I trained in EMDR back in um, end of 2015, the beginning of 2016. I think I was, if not the only, one of the only EMDR therapists in Hunter Health. 
that was trained in EMDR. Right. So, and when I did it, there was once again, no, I mean, even as I said, in ACT, social workers just didn't do it. ASW did not give any trainings in ACT or EMDR or anything. They do now, but they didn't back then, you know. Yeah. And parts work is another one, you know, being trained in either ego states or resource therapy or IFS, you know, parts work is really important in the work. And then understanding the somatic work, understanding the polyvagal, understanding the vagus nerve and how that responds once again as an animal, you know, and looking at things through an attachment lens. Mm Mm-hmm understanding how important attachment is you know Gabor Martez does some beautiful work he's an amazing clinician he's got some great books out on addiction in the realms of hungry ghosts which you know is one of the first books I read around addiction it changed my way of how I looked at people with addiction I'm looking at authenticity versus attachment you know you look at that how if you're too much for your parents so say you're a you're a child that is highly sensitive and emotional and your parents keep shutting you down you have to keep your attachment with your parents to keep alive. So you're going to give up that authenticity of who you are to keep that attachment. Mm. I mean, how sad is that, yes. that you give up who you are just to keep that attachment? So I think it's a really exciting time to be a therapist and I think it's a really exciting time to be a social worker. Social workers are getting a lot better name out there, which I think is really good. We have a couple of paediatricians that have been referring to me since I was down in Newcastle. And they will only refer to accredited mental health social workers because we look at things through an attachment lens. I wonder if a better question then might be what changes would you like to see in this area if you had your magic wand? (laughs) Changes would I like to see? If I had my magic wand, what would I like to see? I would like to see, and people won't probably like what I'm going to say, I would like to see registration Mm -hmm. and probably social workers won't like that. I would like us to be more accountable. And I know APRA, I'm not saying that we have come under APRA because APRA, I provide consultation to a lot of psychologists and there's a lot of fear that runs through them from APRA, which I didn't realise until I did that. Mm-hmm. So it's not about that. It's, it's just about I think there should be more accountability for social workers. When I look at government institutions like health, there is no, so you can have a level three social worker there. They don't have to keep training. They don't have to be a member of the ASW. They don't have to keep training. You can have social workers there that haven't trained for 20 years. Mm-hmm. That's dangerous to me. So yeah. I would like to see that tightened up, you know, whether or not you have to be a member of ASW and same with us as accredited mental health social workers. We have to do so many points, you know, professional development every year. I think that should be done. I think we need to take back our name. So instead of just people saying they're social workers because they haven't even done the social work degree, but they call themselves social workers. You know, that irks me a little bit when you've done six years of uni, four years bachelor, two years masters. So I think we need to take that back. I think also to be proud of our core values, because that's what I think about being a social worker to me is number one, the social justice part of it. But also I think one of the best ones we have is the self-determination. So our clients write to self-determination, even if we don't agree with them. So even if, you know, that mother wants to stay in that domestic violence relationship, that's her choice. We give her all the information, mm. the impact on the children, that she even may lose the children, all that stuff. We give her all that, but she still chooses to stay in that relationship. We have to, we respect that because that is one of our core values, you know. Mm. I think that's what sets us apart. It's that dignity of risk. It is. It sets us apart. It's not this, we know what's best for you you know, which is some helping professions have this, 
we know what's best for you you do as what i say yeah you know and i think that's what sets us apart and that's what makes me proud to be a social worker is our core values and our social justice um but i think we do need to have some registration yeah that's a good segue then to training mm-hmm. what are you working on what's coming up for you okay so we've just delivered our first training so both amy and myself have created a model called relational integrative emdr so it's a mixture of incorporates attachment informed emdr so it's a different way of working of working emdr it's where we go back and repair the ruptures in attachment mm. and so it has attachment emdr it has resource therapy in it which is parts work we have because we're both um, clinical resource therapist trainers and it also has somatic polyvagal work so noticing what's happening in the body working very somatically instead of left brain we work very right brained so very somatically mm-hmm. that's where we try to keep our clients in the right brain if we can because the left brain will tell you what it wants you to hear whereas the body doesn't hide it the body can't hide it so that's where we try to work and so we've just delivered our first i think three weeks ago with beginning of november we did it a three-week training retreat and we incorporated a holotropic breathwork session on the first day for the therapists and that was amazing absolutely really amazing because it just opened up their own stuff which then allowed them to be more open to learning as well mm-hmm. and everyone was barefoot just about for the whole three days there was lots of outside mindfulness practice lots of experiential training as well lots of demonstrations and practice so it was it was a really great went better than what we thought it would the food was also amazing so it was here in the hunter valley in a beautiful place called kirkton park And it was so lovely that we've already got, there was 21 participants and that was part one and 10 have already signed up for part two, which is not till June. And yeah, it was amazing. So we're really excited about that. So we've already got part one and part two booked in two lots next year. We're also going to be doing some clinical resource therapy training, which is the parts work training. We've got that booked in and then I'm developing a basic MDR training. So that means once that gets passed by MDR, that means I can be an accredited MDR and teach basic MDR as well. So that's quite a lengthy process, but I'm taking four to five mm. weeks off over Christmas to get both part one and part two done and submitted and hopefully be approved, hopefully by June, I'm hoping, and then roll that out as well. That's amazing. Yeah, loving it. And I can imagine that sort of thing gives you energy, right? Yes, it's hard work to develop and then to facilitate but the feedback that you must get from the participants must be incredible yeah Yeah, it was it and and it was actually really enjoyable developing i didn't think it'd be that much fun but it was actually a lot of fun and amy and i work very well together we bounce off each other and we've also got ben as well who's he's a clean psych at siva house he's also a clinical resource therapist trainer so we're bringing him into our training as well now and he's really good as well. So yeah, lots of good stuff's happening. We're really excited about 2024. It's gonna be quite busy, but it's exciting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, incredible. Well, mm. send through any links that you've got and I can pop them in the show notes and okay. people lovely. can go off and have a look. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. Love to do that. In addition, if people are interested in knowing more about the work that you do or the approaches that you use, where would you direct them? You've already mentioned Gabo Mate. Yes, we also do a live demonstration called Fish Bowls, MDR and a Fish Bowl. We've been doing them for two years now. Before they were only for MDR therapists and you had to pay. But what we've, both Amy and I decided that next year we were just going to open them up for free 
and that anyone's welcome. Anyone that's got an interest in EMDR and how it may work is welcome to come and have a look. So there's going to be six workshops next year. The January one's already booked out. We're opening them up to 60 people. We thought 60 people would be enough for us. That's a lot. January one's already booked out. So, but there's one in March and I'll definitely give you the link to that one as well. So I would say mm -hmm. um, go and have a look at that one. Go and read some stuff on Polyvagal. Gabor Mate, yep, the authenticity versus attachment. He's got lots of YouTube videos. Linda Tai is a beautiful somatic therapist. She's just absolutely amazing. She's got a training platform called Collectively Rooted, which is with um, Bessel van der Kolk and um, Lucia Sky, his wife. Mm -hmm. And her, she's just done three levels of training, and it was actually it was it was very cheap. It was I think from memory it was one hundred and ten dollars US which is really cheap and it was beautiful. She sings to you before she starts the training. It's just gorgeous. Oh, I love that so much. She came to Australia as a Vietnamese refugee when she was a baby. So she's actually, she's, you know, and then she's, she lives over now, I think in Alaska or Canada, but she's beautiful. Um, yeah, and there's lots of books mm. out there on EMDR and memory and attachment and yeah, just, just go out and read. And they're also welcome to drop me a line and I'm happy to forward on any information that they want as well. Yeah, that's wonderful. I will also put a link to the episode with Amy because that was incredible. Yeah, yeah, yep, awesome. That was episode 89, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so you've worked most of your career in this area and mm -hmm. you're a specialist, you're passionate about it, you love it. If for some reason you had a change of heart one day and you decided this isn't what you want to do, is there anything else that has been of interest to you even as you're obviously not Centrelink but as you were doing your placements or anything else that you've come across in health or elsewhere that you thought oh, no. I'd like to give that one a try no this no is you. um as soon as I got into sexual assault I knew this is what I wanted to do I was passionate about it but it just felt right it was like it was it I don't want to be mm. anything else and I laugh with the guys because I say you know I'll be doing this till I die unless I get dementia <laughs> hopefully I don't get dementia yeah. You know, even when I'm old, I'm hoping, you know, still be doing something like this. Even if it's just doing some consults or something, you know, I would want to be doing something, have my foot in this door because I think mm -hmm. it's a very exciting time to be a therapist. And private practice, if you can find a good team, do you know what I mean? Like a good group of people, that would be my suggestion. Go in with a group of people. If you've got, you know, friends and that, that do similar work, go into it together mm -hmm. Yeah. and support each other. Yeah. It's been such a wild ride for you. It's it's incredible, even from the very early days when you had so much flexibility and and freedom as a newer social worker, but mm. really thrown in the deep end in terms of here you go, here's a role, you're by yourself. Yes, you've got some other people around that you can rely on if you need to, but you just kind of had to figure it out and really understand the importance of that networking, mm. right, in order to build that community of people that had common goals. And even now you're building that group of like-minded people around you, both within Theta House, but also just the networks and the training and the people that are important and the people that have that real same outlook on life. Mm -hmm. And you're really passionate about the rights of people who have experienced trauma and assault and the people that are harming others because you can see that perspective of this is yeah. how we've gotten to this point and yes we can't change that but we can hopefully adjust our understanding or expectations in that area yeah and i am passionate about doing victim services work 
So one thing I'm passionate about is providing a service to people who cannot afford to see a clinician. Do you know what I mean? Because just about everyone I see is low socioeconomic under victim services. They could not afford to see me privately. Yeah. So that's what I love about victim services work. It doesn't pay you that well. It pays enough. Mm-hmm. You know, you can still survive on it. It does pay enough, but it doesn't pay as much as what I would get doing private work. Sure. So I balance that out with my consultancy work in my training that's how I, I leave that out so there is ways that you can do it where you can still have that aspect of being a social worker we're not that good at asking for money I found that out you know what mm-hmm. I mean so you know so there's ways that you can still do that and I find victim services work is a way that because you can advocate very strongly there as well yeah you're actually I think the third person I've spoken with who's worked in victim services who's had exactly the same experience in terms of the funding, just mm-hmm. there's a set amount, a gazetted rate, if you will, and this is what they can offer. And so they've had to very similarly just keep a couple of spots open or a couple of people that they have looked after for a long period of time and it just mm-hmm. makes sense for them to be supported by the same people. So, yeah, it, it's nice to have the balance though, right, the mm-hmm. variety mm-hmm. of the work that you do and kind of keeping everything fresh. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I also see therapists as well. So I see them under a mental health because they can afford Mm. to pay. So it is a nice balance. You know, therapists are a lot quicker because they're usually well-resourced. When we say well-resourced, they've got good adaptive networks. They pick it up a lot quicker. You don't have to hold them as long, you know. Mm -hmm. It is a nice balance, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds so fulfilling and just being really genuine in the work that you're doing and allowing space for vulnerability for yourself, your clients, the people that you consult with and being able to build on the transferability of EMDR for social workplaces, which is really important. It's lovely. I'm very lucky, very lucky that I do what I do. Mm -hmm. I really look forward to following your media and hearing about all the training and the workshops that you're doing. And yeah, definitely send me anything you've got. And I'd love to be able to promote that wherever I can because it's wonderful work and it's accessible. And I mean, you're making it free. That's unheard of. It's something that you're really just Mm. wanting to be able to share your experience, your knowledge, and just be able to get it out to a wider audience. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, I mean, the reason we do it is because for me, the more therapists out there that are doing this work, the better it is for the people out there. Like it's a win-win. It's a win-win. It will make the world a better place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. I absolutely loved this chat, loved meeting with you and yeah, look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you. It was lovely. It was lovely to meet you too. And yeah, please look, come along to one of our fishbowls even and just have a look at the work we do. You're quite welcome. I'd love to. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Yasmeen. Thanks for joining me this week. If you'd like to continue this discussion or ask anything of either myself or Michelle, please visit my Anchor page at anchor.fm slash socialworkspotlight. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email swspotlightpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Please also let me know if there is a particular topic you'd like discussed, or if you or another person you know would like to be featured on the show. Next episode's guest is Sharon, who has worked as a caseworker, group work coordinator, child and family counsellor and primary school counsellor and is now an accredited mental health social worker in private practice. She provides supervision to other social workers and students, is trained as a systemic couple and family therapist and facilitates both standard and youth mental health first aid training. I release a new episode every two weeks 
please subscribe to my podcast so you're notified when this next episode is available. See you next time. Thank you.